the rotation of the body and the arm starts from the spine and moves outward. It's just like a hitter. Most guys can understand when a guy has a connected swing, the body is turning the barrel of the bat. And then when they have a disconnected swing, their hands get away from their body and their arms are swinging the bat. It's kind of the same way with throwing. My body is turning my arm and making it lay back and deliver the ball instead of arm getting or the hand getting way away from me as I start rotating way away from my head and disconnected. Welcome to Ahead of the Curve, your source for the most up-to-date coaching strategies for player and coaching development, and this is Jonathan Gellner. Today, we are joined by an outstanding guest, Coach Flint Wallace. Coach Wallace is the Director for Player Development for the Texas Baseball Ranch. We discuss what TBR looks for in fixing pitching mechanics, as well as the most common problems he sees with youth pitchers. We also get into what his recommendations are for pitching, depending on what time of the year it is. I know you're going to enjoy this one with Coach Flint Wallace. Coach Wallace, thank you for being on Ahead of the Curve. Thanks, Coach. Appreciate it. Tell us how you got to where you are today and uh, kind of what's a little bit about your background. Uh, yeah, uh, I went to high school at Weatherford High School. I played three sports in high school. I was a football player. I actually played soccer as well, and then I was a baseball player. Uh, as my career started going through, I realized baseball was my best route. Uh, I ended up going to uh, San Jacinto College out of high school, uh, San Jack to what most people no, I played a year at San Jack, and then I transferred to TCU. and played three years at TCU, and I was fortunate enough to get to go play some pro ball, and I played a few years in the Oakland A's organization. And then I came back and uh, was fortunate after I got done playing pro ball. My old high school, Weatherford High, had a uh, coaching position open. Uh, one of my old football coaches was the assistant AD at the time, and uh, he knew I just got done playing, and he asked that I'd be interested. And so I, got, I did, and I – Got to get into coaching and started off as most people did as a, you know, I was a freshman football coach and, and then a, bar, a baseball assistant coach. And so I was assistant baseball coach for five years and then became the head coach at Weatherford for two. Uh, then I was one to get into the college realm. So I went and uh, became the director of player development at TCU for a year. And then after that, I was fortunate enough, Jeff Lightfoot, at Weatherford College, I uh, had an opening for the pitching position, and we we'd had some history together. So he called me, and I got to go back home to Weatherford, but this time to Weatherford College, and then I was the pitching coach there for seven years. Throughout this time, at that time, about the time I was in, working in, into high school, TCU, college, I uh, started working camps for Ron Wolforth down here at the Texas Baseball Ranch. And then three years ago, actually this month, he hired me full-time uh, to be the play- director of player development here down at the Texas Baseball Ranch. So that's how I got to where I'm at right now. And, um, you know, it's been a journey that's uh, gave me a lot of experience and created a, a, a lot of friendships along the way, and, and I enjoyed every bit of it. And so what was your reason for getting into coaching? I, just growing up, uh, my coaches always had big influences in my life, and I just wanted to do the same to for other people, you know, I, I I had coaches that invested in me and believed in me and showed me that I could do things beyond what maybe at the present moment I thought I could or whatever at that time. And I wanted to instill that into other people. And that's what uh, drove me into that field of coaching. Awesome. 
And so I'd like to really start digging into the player development component. So take us through what would what you would do if a high school kid or even college kid walks into the door at the Texas Baseball Ranch and says that he wants training. Okay. Uh, first thing you do is that we would have I'd have them fill out some assessments so I can get some background knowledge on them, and it would be you know just some audits uh, that they would fill out like. If they have arm issues, uh, you know, how many, how much innings they've thrown the last year, what their role has been uh, on their team, reliever, starter, that type of stuff. Uh, we'd have them fill out what they thought their command audit would be, you know, how many times you could throw your fastball to this location and that kind of stuff. Just to get background knowledge and try to get a little bit of knowing the kid. Then we uh, take them through a physical assessment just to see how their body moves and see if they have any physical constraints that could be keeping them from reaching their full potential, something that we could chip away at and get better just to make them be able to move better. Then we get them ready and get them on video and do a thorough video analysis of them to see if there's something in the delivery that may need to be enhanced or improved upon. And then from there, we would we would just start going through the work after all that detail and just start going, okay, this is – we see an issue that could clean up here in your delivery. We see uh, you may have some hip mobility issues that may be, keep, may be contributing to why that movement in the pitch and delivery is happening. So we need to work on uh, enhancing this hip mobility or getting it better. And we would just start mapping out a plan from all that knowledge that we have for that guy and then we would start directing him and guiding him and showing him the steps of that plan so that he could move forward and hopefully improve in all those areas all at once. We don't try to just improve at one area at one time. It's you know mass simultaneous trying to get everything improved. And so, but we'd get him on that plan so he would have a structured way and a, and a path to try to go down and understand on how he should be able to go about enhancing his uh, baseball career. So you mentioned that it's not necessarily a hierarchy of needs. It's more of a, okay, so here are some areas that we need to improve. Let's try and hit them all at one time. Am, am yeah. I understanding that correctly? Well, yeah, because there's some things like the because physical constraints and movement pattern constraints, they have to be worked on simultaneous. So for, what, for instance, does the guy have bad hip mobility because he makes a bad movement pattern pitching, or does he make a bad movement pattern pitching because he has bad hip mobility? I don't know which one came first, the chicken or the egg. I don't care. I'm just going to fix both of them at the same time, and that way we can create a better and faster flow of improving that area all at once. That's what I mean by the same point in time. So I'm not going to stop him from throwing and say, okay, we got bad hip mobility we're just going to spend a month on hip mobility stuff. That can't be it because it may have been the opposite way. Then when we got back, the movement pattern could have been what was causing the hip because he just was, he had bad motor programming going on to make a movement. So I think if you work on them both at the same time, uh, the guy progresses way faster and learns it way better. The human body is more intelligent than we could ever imagine. It can handle way more than we think it can. So I think the more you can throw at it, the better it adapts and the quicker it adapts. Do you guys start with just based on the assessments of the movement screen or do you start with like the very front of their delivery because what's what you start with may affect the end result? So how do you process that? 
Yeah, well, naturally, whatever, we, any constraints in their movement pattern, we start trying to correct those right there. Like, as far as uh, physical movement patterns, like hip mobility, stuff like that, we put them on uh, corrective exercises and other exercises to hand that. But when we go working on their delivery, we will always start with arm action. Any disconnection in the arm action, we will try to fix that first uh, and get it connected to the spine, let it be working with the body, not separated from the body. That's what we mean by being connected. And then we will address the other issues of the delivery, which could be lower half or torque, which most people call hip shoulder separation, that kind of stuff. And the reason why we do that is we feel your arm has to be connected first because if we start working and create a better lower half and create more, for instance, horsepower going through the system and your arm is still disconnected, we're actually putting or increasing your chance of getting injured because we're putting more energy in the system and you are disconnected with your arm. So if we get the arm connected first, then we feel like we can add as much energy through the system as we possibly can. And that way you can progress in a safer, more uh, durable and steady way than you could if we just try to go out and let's just throw and you have a bad arm action or a disconnection then we're put we're actually increasing that guy's chance of getting hurt and that's the last thing we want to do when they come to us our job is to get them better and it does us no good if we get the guy five miles an hour but three months down the road he's on the shelf we didn't help that kid we have to help him stay healthy too that's the key part first because when we send him back to his high school or college coach he has to be durable that's what that guy wants you know our first thing is kind of like the hypocrite go do no harm <laughs> you know at least send him back where he's going to be healthy and then work on getting and progressing his ability and getting better you talked about the arm being connected to the spine and i know we're on audio and there's no video is there a way that you could explain what that looks like through audio for our listeners uh, yeah, the best way is the body just the arm just moves with the body. The body is the main contributor. Uh, you'll see guys that the arm looks like for better, and it just gets away from the body. It's like separate pieces moving. The body's moving one way, and the arm's moving another way. That's disconnected. And then you see guys like a lot of you know like Zag Grinky and those guys who arm just kind of just moves along with their body. It's like their arm is just reacting to what their body is doing and they're not their arms not leading the way so it's hard to explain but it's one of those things where we see the spine initiates the movement in the arms that's what we mean by being connected it's not where the arms start moving first and then the body tries to play catch up with the rotation and stuff it's hard to show without pictures but that's the best way to describe it is uh, the rotation, the rotation of the body and the arm starts from the spine and moves outward. It's just like a hitter. Most guys can understand when a guy has a connected swing, the body is turning the barrel of the bat. And then when they have a disconnected swing, their hands get away from their body and their arms are swinging the bat. It's kind of the same way with throwing. If you can imagine, it's just my body is turning my arm and making it lay back and deliver the ball instead of me getting my hand away from me and it, the arm getting or the hand getting way away from me as I start rotating way away from my head and disconnected. So it's kind of the same premise with hitters and pitchers. It just you have to look a little different now. The the hand is the is the bat part for the pitcher instead of the it's basically the same thing. The hands get away with the bat. If the hand gets way away from the body and the delivery is disconnected. Well, that's a great explanation. If we were going to look at uh, 
some professional pitchers that seem to have connected arms. Uh, who would you recommend? Well, Greg Maddox, because uh, you can always go find him. He was un- one of the most connected persons of all time. Nolan Ryan. I always suggest go look at Hall of Famers because more than likely they were really connected because they had to stay healthy, they had to be really good, and they had to be do it for a long period of time. Okay, so you you can't be disconnected very often to get away, and, and those three things happen. You know, Nolan Ryan, Greg Maddox, Pedro Martinez, Randy Johnson, uh, Roger Clemens, they all threw differently, but they were all fairly, they were all really connected in their delivery. Nowadays, it gets harder and harder to find guys that are connected. Yeah, um, guys are muscling the ball up a little bit more. You know, they're putting a lot of energy through the system and they're able to throw it hard, but it's not in the most efficient way sometimes or the most connected uh, way now. So it's it's harder to find guys. So I always advise when we have kids come and they say who to look at, I say go find Hall of Famers or guys that have been All Stars and they've been pitching for you know, eight plus years healthy, you know, no major issues or anything. And those guys nine times out of 10 are going to be the guys that are really connected. So, you know, the flavor of the year is not necessarily always the best guy to go look at just because he's really good this year. Doesn't mean he's not going to be injured next year, you know, let him have some track record. And usually when they have a track record, logging a lot of innings, staying healthy, that kind of stuff over multiple years, then those are the guys that you want to try to go see and start studying. So in essence, what you're saying is just do what the best ever have done. Yeah, that's that's the best way. And, and visual is the best way of, of learning and just imitation. You know, I know when I grew up, I, you know, I would well, I'd try to be Nolan Ryan in the backyard or I would try to be Dwight Gooden or Roger Clemens or whoever was pitching, you know, that was really good at that time. And that's what you do. You'd see them and we would go. They do that a lot in the Latin countries. You know, their their best teacher is watching Pedro pitch and try to go throw like Pedro. That's that they don't have the coaches in the individual structure at younger age sometimes. And sometimes that may actually be a, a benefit to them because they get to experiment and feel how their body moves freely and not any time they make something that doesn't look good to the coach's eye movement gets corrected right away when that might not be what how their body wants to move everybody's body's going to move a little bit differently you know you just got to figure out what's going to work for them but long as it's within that ramification of being connected nolan ryan and pedro through different but you know, if you tried to make Pedro throw like Nolan Ryan, we probably don't have Pedro Martinez or vice versa. Probably make Nolan Ryan try to throw like Pedro Martinez. We don't, we didn't have Nolan Ryan. So sometimes that you have to let them have that freedom of, of trying to figure some things out just with guided discovery. And what I mean is, Hey, this is the path I want you to go down. Keep it between the bar ditches. Okay. That's all you got to do and just give them a wide road and let them kind of figure out. You know, let them figure what's, what they, what feels best for their best arm slot, what them feels better on how much pelvic load they need to get or how much glute load they get. long as they are doing everything within the, the ramifications of being connected, more, you know, some guys will get more, some guys will get less, but it's what they can do and what they can connect and what they can load and what they can unload efficiently. And they need to have that freedom to get to do that a little bit within their within the course and that's kind of how we try to help map out their plan we try to give them that guideline of here 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 and 
you know, just stay within that ramification and everything should be okay. Well, and something that, that I've used in my career is you haven't taught until they've learned. And it sounds like that is right in line with, with my thinking. Yeah, exactly. We want, I don't want them to be robots. I don't want them to have to be told every single thing. Uh, I, cause I'm not going to be out there with them on the mound. I'm not going to be back. You know, we get guys from all over the country and actually from different countries that come see us all the time. I'm not going to be back with you at home next month. Okay. You're going to have to think for yourself and figure some things out for yourself. And that's what we want to do is teach them how to be their own best pitching coach. And that's how I always said it. My, my job is actually to eliminate my job. Okay, if that don't ever happen because there's always more growth that can happen. But that's what we want to tell the players. We want you to become your own best coach, your own best guy, your own guy to keep progressing and moving forward. And the guys that really take charge of that are the guys we see that really, really gain really quickly in whatever area they're working on. So on average, how often do you see the players that you work with? Uh, uh, this works vastly different. I mean, we have everything from three-day boot camps to our summer programs, which are 10 weeks long. So, But majority of our guys will come for a three-day boot camp to start with. So we'll see them for these three days. We send them off, and when the, after they left, they have a, a guideline, individualized plan for them. And then we have an online program that we offer to them then after that. And most, a lot of guys take us up on that, and then they send in – of new videos and new, they fill out the workout sheets that they were given and information. They send that in every month. We reevaluate it and send it back out to them. So we can see a guy for three days and then he comes back six months later, or we can see a guy three days and he does ongoing training. We can see a guy uh, in our summer program, I'm fixing to come up. We'll have guys that will come in for two weeks at sessions or guys that may stay for the whole summer, which is 10 weeks long. So, that's the hard part of where it comes is we get such a variety of, of different stays and time frames for what people can handle because, you know, not everybody can just come and stay for 10 weeks. It's not into, it's not in their plan, you know, or, or their structure of what they can do. So we try to best get whatever that guy is, whatever his time frame is. We just try to maximize what it, what we can get done in that period of time and help him with whatever we could do. And, move on from there so we you know naturally would we like to see them for 10 weeks every summer absolutely <laughs> you know where we can really work with them but realistically that's not feasible so uh, we have to do the best we can with the time we have for those guys so how do you evaluate if the plan that you're putting into place is working basically if if they just come for three days and then we don't hear from them anymore and we don't get any feedback it's really hard but most of our guys we're getting a lot of guys now that are signing up for our online program. And so we get to get new evaluations of them every month. So they send a new video and uh, depends on what time of year it is. They have different sheets. They got to fill out for if it's off season and they're really trying to create velocity, then their velocity enhancement sheets or if it's a command emphasis, then their command sheets and all this stuff. So we collect data and information on them and, we see if, the, if, if that scale is tipping and moving forward. And then if it's not, we reevaluate and, and go back to work. You know, sometimes that's going to happen. It's been, it usually doesn't happen early. We usually see it after we get gone and a guy is stagnated or stagnated, excuse me, or uh, something. And 
we have to do something different now to promote that growth back going again because that's how the human body does. If you keep doing the same stuff you do, your body will learn how to adapt and just and not grow anymore. So you always have to be changing that. And that's why measuring as much as we can. You know, we use velocity. We use the radar gun not just to see and try to gain velocity, but we use the radar gun for averages. Our average is more important to us a lot of times than their peak velocity. And if their average is creeping up, that's actually more important than their peak velocity creeping up if they're trying to gain velocity. So, Because one day we know everybody can be connected one time and find lightning in the bottle for one throw and hit 90 maybe if that's what they're shooting for. But their average sits at 86. They may not hit 90 again for two or three months, but if that average is creeping up to 86 and a half, 86.8, 87.2, and it just creeps up, that's, that's telling us the plan and the program is working. We know everybody wants that top end number, but as a pitching coach or as a, when I was a recruiting guys, I cared about what more what their average velocity was than I did their peak velocity because their average velocity is what we're going to get the majority of the time. And so that's what you have to, Collecting as much data as possible is how I think you can uh, see if the plan's working and progressing. And so you mentioned them sending in videos once a month. Are there certain angles that you have them shoot from? Yeah, we, we shoot from their open side. So right-handers, third base side, straight on, or left-handers, first base side, and then straight uh, catcher's view, straight from the catcher's view. And that view, everybody's like, oh, I'm going to hit not. Nah, the guy just lays on the ground about 20 feet in front of the mound <laughs> and give us the video. <laughs> okay, that's the best one it is. And, and we want it close enough. We don't – everybody always wants to send us game footage. We don't want game footage because it's not going to be close enough most of the time to see the majority of the stuff. We want it within – you know, we'd like the camera within 15 feet of, of you if possible. You know, so we tell them it has – you know, it's – we, lo- we would love game footage. We just can't get – if you have a nice zoom-in camera that could get us that, but most people don't. So uh, it's always better to get that. But that's the angles we use because we – and we have down our evaluation process, which we're looking at about 23, 24 different things in the delivery. And those two angles, we can get everything we need to see on those. So what are some of the most common problems that you see with kids? First of all, the one of the biggest ones we see now is they just cannot move, period. Not like pitching. We're not talking about pitching delivery. They just cannot make basic, fundamentally sound movement patterns like squatting and, and lunges and that kind of stuff. We see that more and more. So when you try to teach a new movement pattern on that, they can't make the movements. Uh, so that's one of the things we try to teach, and that's a big part of our program is just to be, create better movers or we spend a, a lot of our time, what people, we call our strength and conditioning part, is basically just being able to get the guy to be more mobile and stable and be able to, to move through more greater ranges of motion a lot of the time. When they can do that, they automatically gain strength. Most people don't think by gaining range of motion that you're going to gain strength, but those guys actually gain a ton of strength by just increasing their range of motion most of the time. And that's what they need. So that's one issue we see. And then the other issue we see is guys just being really, for lack of a better term, robotic in their movements, not free flowing. They, they want, it's like 
step one, step two, step three, step four type stuff instead of just free flowing and being as being athletic and they're sucking energy out of their system when they throw when they're more apt just to be go out be athletic you're probably going to be more you're probably going to be better off we all one of our big saying is when in doubt always return to athleticism now i'm sure you guys still work with players who are in season so can you tell us the differences between in season workouts and off season workouts yeah, yeah, we do it all the time. We we tell guys, you know, we basically have four types of four times a year. We have we call it off season one. It's the off season right after your season because uh, that's a different time for most guys. That's a time when we have to start. We're not ready to push the envelope yet because you just probably went through a full season. Your body needs a little recovery time, but sitting on the couch drinking a Dr Pepper and eating Doritos is not recovery. Okay, so we we have a plan for that period, and it's really short. It's usually about a two to four weeks uh, that part. And then we have our normal off season, which that's now ramping up and pushing the envelope. And we call our off season times your time to try to increase your ability, which means throw it harder, create more spin on your breaking ball, whatever it is, your ability, things that coaches and scouts measure. That's what players don't understand sometimes. We say they are measuring your skill. They're not measuring your skill most of the time. Your skill level could be great, but if your ability level isn't to that next level, then it doesn't matter on your skill. So basically, if you don't throw hard enough for what they're looking for, they kind of look at them the other way. It just has to have certain things at certain levels. So you need to increase your ability to try to get to that next level. Then we switch to preseason time. Now, preseason time is now we're still working on ability some, but now we are moving in to honing or enhancing our skill set, which is command work, throwing the ball where we want to, fine-tuning the delivery, uh, that type of stuff that starts taking place. In off-season, it's about 80% ability work, 20% skill work. Then in that preseason time, it turns into about 50-50, we're working on ability and working on skill. And then when the season turns around, it switches to about 80% honing skill and 20% of just trying to keep our ability where it's at or make sure we increase a little bit, which is really hard in the season. But the big thing is you still have to work on your ability some in season. So I still have to push the envelope a little bit at times or it starts regressing. So that's how we kind of break it up. So our end season time is – skill honing or enhancing more but making sure we still get a little bit of at least one or two days a week of where we're doing a little bit of making sure our ability stays where it's at or trying to slightly increase it which is you know arm street stuff or velocity enhancement or really just working if it's breaking ball stuff working on spin whatever whatever your ability level is we have to make sure we can keep that because We've all seen as coaches that guy that regresses as a season goes on. Velocity starts dropping, breaking ball starts getting flatter, all that. Because all he did was work on skill only during the season, and that starts reducing and, and going back. His ability started regressing, and he couldn't keep his below where it was or his breaking ball as sharp as it was because he'd never truly worked at that max effort between outings ever. You know, you have to do it a little bit. You have to be careful on how much to do it. But between outings, you still have to work at max effort on some things once or twice a week. And do you recommend doing that 
a certain amount of days after the start to, to get back to max effort? Uh, yeah, we, we always, we tell our guys, usually if it's a, if you're a starter, you probably need at least 72 hours before you push again after your game. A reliever could be closer to 48 hours if he needed to. Now, relievers are a little bit different animal. High school, I know it's not quite like it was in college. In college, we would have relievers that would throw two or three times a week, you know, in games. So they're pushing the envelope already two or three times. So to get one of them to try to push something else isn't necessary because they are already trying to throw max effort in games. But a starter who's only doing it once every seven days, we recommend usually about that day four after there needs to be a little bit of time in there uh, where maybe your last 10 throws in the bullpen or I don't care where they go, just let it rip. Stuff like that to, to get the velocity going. Or maybe it's, uh, okay, this on your long toss today, your last five throws, you're just trying to throw it as far as you can. There's different ways about going about doing things. There's no one way to skin the cat. But whatever that guy works for him, what he feels comfortable within his framework, but he needs to still work on that and do that. I suggest at least 72 hours for a starter after uh, or in between. So three days of, before he pushes that envelope on that fourth day, and then he'll still have you know 48 hours before he has to pitch in a game again. I got you. I really like that. After the season, you said that they work on their next level ability. What is your advice for the kids that are saying, I don't even know what that looks like? Yeah, uh, that's a big thing that kids don't see because for nowadays, for some reason, they don't watch baseball. <laughs> they just don't. They they play it, but they don't watch it. Uh, so my advice to them is there's enough on, you know, online and stuff. Go YouTube college baseball game, you know, D1 level if that's what you want, and watch some pitchers throw at that level, and you can see what their velocity is. You can see what their breaking ball stuff looks like. You can see that. Most guys, especially here in Texas, we got we got colleges fairly close to most, school, you know, a lot of the schools. Try to go out and watch them on a Saturday or Sunday and see what, you know, see what the level of play is like. When I was a college coach and most and even when I was a high school coach, I understood this. I went and watched. Not always my the best player on a high school team doesn't always mean he can go play at a certain college just because he was the best player on that team. They have to know what that level of play really truly is. So go try to watch them and educate yourself on what that next ability level. Pitching wise is probably the easiest because man, it's it's usually velo numbers, you know, command and strike percentage and how good your breaking ball stuff is. You know, and, and your chain if you can throw a change up for a strike. If if your velo numbers are at least at the minimum level they want, you can spin a breaking ball with some tight break on it and you can throw a changeup for a strike, that level's going to come calling for you. You know, so that's what we mean. So when in doubt, always try to increase those three things as a pitcher, and you're always going to be good. You're always going to be able to handle that. Hitting, you know, position player-wise, hitting-wise, it's always going to be bat speed, how far you can hit it, power, you know, solid contact on the how, how often you find the barrel uh, on pitches, that kind of things that, you know, you always can work on getting that stuff so you know it's not hard to find especially now with the internet out just do a little research and find guys you know i tell our guys all the time i know you most guys don't have time to go watch a two and a half three hour game anymore okay or at night on tv especially during the weeks to watch big league games but you have time to youtube five minutes of 
best fastballs or five minutes of a game that was played last night and watch a pitcher. With the technology that now today, it's probably much easier to gather information than it was back when I was growing up when there was none of that. And your only way to see what it was was to go watch a college game or a professional game. My first big thing is, is I always tell our guys, your, your goal for your strength and conditioning is not to get stronger. Your goal should be to get more explosive. Strength is part of that, but you can also get stronger and get less explosive. We see it all, you know, you can go in and because a bench press is a pretty slow lift. Squats are pretty low slip. You're not necessarily getting more explosive just because you can move more weight all the time. Now, it helps, but you got to make sure you're maintaining that athleticism and become an extremely explosive athlete because that's what a baseball player needs to be. They need to have explosive strength, not, not power lifting strength. So switching gears a little bit, and you touched on this earlier about one of the things that colleges look for as far as uh, some of the skills, and you said mentioned strike percentage. So how do you teach command? Command, it's a multifaceted part, but command is a skill. So like any skill, it can be improved upon, okay? Most guys just haven't thrown enough, or they can't throw enough because their arm isn't healthy enough or whatever to to command that skill. There's also some movement pattern enhancement that can help help with command, okay? Like it's easier, you know, if you can create a later launch or a later release point in your delivery, it's probably going to help increase, you know, move you in that direction. It's not going to guarantee you have command, but it's a more – it's usually guys that have good command – that's a reason, you know, they have that byproduct. So there is some movement pattern stuff you can do, but it's very minimal. Mainly it's just throwing enough to, to understand how to get that there and get the skill acquisition. I think where we mess up a lot of times, if a guy doesn't have command or even control, we always make him work from 60 feet, six inches. Who says we can't start him at 20 feet until he can hit that spot 80% of the time? And then we can move him back to 30 feet and hit until he can hit the spot 80% of the time, then 40 feet, then 50 feet, then back to 60 feet. You know, sometimes we put them at a spot that is too far beyond their present capability. Okay. I'm not saying we shouldn't always try to push them a little bit past their present capability, but we can't put them so far past their present capability that it's, it's overwhelming, and sometimes I think we get to that point, especially when we're trying to do stuff. We we want them to run before they crawled and walked sometimes, and so sometimes it's our fault as coaches, and I've been as guilty as anybody of it. Uh, it was hard for me for a long time because I didn't ever have an issue throwing strikes to understand why a guy couldn't throw strikes, okay? You know, sometimes it, it was hard for me. Now I've come back to find out that, hey, it's okay. That's just what his constraint may be at this point. Let's figure out a way to look at it. So I don't ever look as to guys as yes or no on anything. I don't look at it as yes or no, you have command. That's not – it's always something we're working on and trying to get better, and we're going to figure out what your current spot is, and then I'm going to just try to push you just a little bit past that to get better. And then when you can reach that current level, then we're going to try to increase it a little bit more and not not make huge jumps, but make little small steps. I've actually used a line that is somewhat similar to that this year. I have a kid that's 6'6", and I'm 5'9". And so I've told him many times that I have no idea what it's like to be 6'6". 
And so if he could try and relay to me how everything feels, and then we just start every day with playing catch with a purpose. Uh, does that does that make sense? Yeah, we, we always emphasize every throw you ever make is, is either helping with your command or going against your command. So, yeah, always have a purpose. Always have a spot. Be focused in with your throws because if I'm just throwing the ball north, you know, plant when we're warming up, then my body, that's the majority of everybody's throws every day. It's just the catch part to warm up every day. And if you're not focused there in that time and, you, and the ball is 10 feet to the right this time, then 10 feet to the left, you bounce the next one. You're high on the next one because you're not really focused. You're just trying to get your arm moving. That's just activity. So anytime you throw after that, your body thinks, oh, let's just do activity. It doesn't matter where it goes. And so you've got to train your body to get that focus and and that and really – really concentrate on the feel of the ball coming off your hands and and feel the difference of when you execute a throw like you want and feel how it does when you don't execute the throw. Because when it comes to sports, and especially pitching, feels the deal. It, you've got to be able to, to feel how it's supposed to go. And that's really hard for younger guys because they don't they won't understand it at first. Because they're just like, I don't know how it felt, you know. But you just got to stay with them and start thinking, hey, did that come off the fingers better, worse? Did you create more spin, less spin, you know? And you just start asking them better questions and make them answer the question and don't let I don't know come across as an answer. You know, make them and make them start addressing and start. Then they start becoming more aware and awareness is curative when you become aware of something then you can cure so i'm a high school pitching coach and most of our listeners are high school coaches what would be your advice on how to individualize training with as many kids as we have and with time restrictions okay first time you you got it you got to be extremely organized for this okay and it's not i'm not saying it's easy it's not okay because i mean when i was a college coach there's times i had over 20 plus pitchers on the same staff. Okay. And we had 20 plus some different things going on. And what I mean by different things is within the structure of our practices, guys were doing what they needed to work on, but it looked, it may look like if you came to our practice that everybody was doing the same thing. Okay. So what I mean is like, if we're going through our, our warm up part and our stretch, our dynamic warm ups. And that stuff, then right after dynamic warm-up, we would always have a little area of mobility work. We had them right, right there for a couple of minutes of what that guy specifically needed to do for mobility. They're all doing something to work on mobility, but it's what they specifically needed. So this guy may need to be have internal hip mobility. This next guy's working on external hip mobility. This next guy's working on T-spine mobility. This guy may be working on shoulder internal rotation mobility. But they're all working on it for a couple of minutes, and it's a structured sound. That's just an example. Okay? And then we go to our arm care. We had different arm care stuff for whatever different days of your throwing is going to be. Now, everybody was doing their pre-throwing arm care, but, you know, two guys may be doing this exercise and four guys doing this exercise and six guys doing this exercise. But they're all doing pre-care arm care. It was just based on their need for that day or maybe even their individuality need where we may need to create some more scapular stabilization. So he has to do a a certain arm care exercise every day for that. And then you move on to 
whatever their throwing is for that day. Everybody, we're going to go throw just like everybody else, but some guys may be max long toss that day. Other guys may be, uh, you know, what we, we would just call uh, stretch it out day, which just as far as they could handle and getting ready. Then we went to our, you know, may go to our drill work time. Everybody's doing drill work, but not everybody's doing the same drills. They're doing the drills that they need to work on for whatever movement pattern they need or whatever connection they need to work on. And then naturally you go to, you know, your command work or bullpen work. You know, most guys do flat ground work. I, I tend to want to do my stuff off the mound as much as possible, but that was just my philosophy. But whatever you're doing there, but everybody's are working on different things. And you just have to have it mapped out now. But if you came and looked at one of my structured practice, you're like, oh, well, those guys are throwing bullpens. Yeah. But none of them were throwing the same bullpen probably. Does that make sense? You know, they're down there working on what they need to make. Or, oh, those guys are doing drill work. Yeah, but they're not. Two of them are doing this drill. Three of them are doing another drill. And this guy's doing something that none of the other five guys are doing. But he's still doing his drill work because we had it mapped out and I was really organized in practice and we detailed it out what that guy needs to work on. And I had open lines of communications with my guys. We talked all the time. And sometimes that was it was a lot easier when I was a straight pitching coach. It was harder when I was the head coach and pitching coach. Okay, and I'm just going to say this because as a head coach, you're the guy that makes the final decision. So sometimes they may not tell you and be completely honest with you on everything. When you're the pitching coach, they, it's easier because they don't feel like that head coach is the guy that's going to do it. So you, But you've got to be honest with your guys and have open communication. Uh, when I was a coach, even in high school, practice plans were 45-minute ordeals every day, you know, just working on that part of what we were going to map out, what this guy needed to work on, what this guy needed. To, and that was just with, you know, your eight or ten guys that may be throwing – uh, for you, you know, or how, you know, if you're doing all the plans for fresh, I got to where my JV coach and freshman coach were doing the plans they needed with their guys. We kind of overstructured, but I wanted to teach them how to do plans because they all, they always, all my guys, when I was a varsity head coach, the two guys I had that were my JV and freshman coach had aspirations to be high school head coaches one day, and they both ended up being so I was trying to teach them how I went about the process. And so I let them handle their JV and the freshman guys. And they did the exact same way. So for me as a varsity coach, I was dealing with my eight to 10 varsity pitchers. And then when I moved to college, it was my 16 to 22 pitchers, depending on what year it was. You know, so uh, but you have to be organized. You have to have a plan, but you can get it in within the framework of your practice. It's just every guy not doing the exact same thing. They're doing the same kind of thing, but it's not, it's exactly what they need. Not everybody doing the exact same exact drill every day. And so it sounds like you're putting a lot of ownership on the player as well. Yes, you do. And, and you're there and you're monitored. Yeah. I mean, they have to, in the grand scheme of thing, what I tell everybody, it's their playing career. I, I may want it as bad in the world for them, but it doesn't matter how bad I want it or how much I want them to improve. It's how much they want to go. And when you tend to give them a little bit of ownership and don't dictate everything to them, they they tend to work a little harder for you at that is what I've seen from my experience because now they feel like, oh, well, coach just didn't dictate to me what to do. He's, you know, he's expecting me 
to do this, and it's my job to get it done and get better. I felt that way, and I think that's the type of players we have now, that time of dictatorship, everybody does this, military style of practices doesn't work like it does now just because of too much information out there and too much knowledge and guys you know, doing how how things were working and with select ball and stuff. Not that I'm, I'm not bashing on select ball one way or the other. It's just a different day now where guys didn't practice. They don't practice as a team all the time. They have to practice an individual setting and then go play as a team later on. So that you have to get that guy where he understands how he can still be an individual, but within that team setting and take some ownership to help the team get better. And when you do that, I think we, the guy really takes the bull by the horn and tries to improve. And so staying on the subject of practices, what are your thoughts on building competition into practice? And uh, if you love it, then what are some practical ways to do it? Yeah, I think, I think you should, you should compete now. It, you know, there's certain days it needs to happen and certain days that, you know, it may not because it depends on what that guy needs to work on. So for pitchers wise, let's, we'll, we'll use pitching wise. Uh, we used to have competitive bullpens where we would have two guys match up in the bullpen and we, we would have uh, pitching scripts basically to what their style or their way of pitching was. It wouldn't be the same necessary exact pitch for both guys, okay? Because some guys pitch totally different that it may have been their bullpens to match up, you know? So, but what it would be going through is, okay, here's your, here, you're, we're going to have two innings of 15 pitches. This is your script. You've got to go through. This is your script. got to go through. The one that executes the most pitches wins. Yeah, so they're competing in their bullpen, even though there's not a battle. They're working on executing their pitches. And you have some kind of consequence at the end. I, I wasn't a physical punishment guy as consequences. I was more of a clean up the field, fix the bullpen, fix the mound type stuff if you lost your competition that day. you have, Or you owe the guy a Sonic Route 44 drink after practice or something. I, I didn't believe conditioning punted. That was just me. But I thought that was a great way to have pitchers compete. Uh, we, we would also have times where we'd bring three pitchers in at one time or six pitchers at one time, three on each team, and we would have a script. And now they did have – they that team had to execute that pitch before they could move to the next pitch on the script, and the team that got through the pitching script first won. So, for example, it was fastball to your glove side. So it didn't matter if you're righty or lefty. You had to execute a fastball to your glove side. So first guy comes up for your team, and he doesn't execute that pitch. Then the next guy on your team has to throw fastball to his glove side. And then say he executed fastball to his glove side, then you would move to the next pitch on the script, which may be breaking ball for a strike. It doesn't matter which your breaking ball is. It could be curveball, slider, or whatever. You may just have to throw it for a strike. And you either, if you execute it, you move to pitch three. If you don't execute it, the next guy has to try to execute it. And you, and you flip back and forth between the two bullpens. He, they throw, they throw, they throw, they throw. So you, they always have the same equal number of throws. So there's ways to compete like that. I was real big on competing, the hitters competing every day. There's a lot of days we, all our drill work in the bullpen, I mean, in the cages and stuff, we would partner guys up and we we created point systems for every drill and they kept points against each other. The winner had to pick up cages, do stuff. I mean, didn't, the losers had to pick up the cages, help with the field and the winners didn't have to do anything. And then we liked to scrimmage a bunch. We had a, as a team way of competition, we 
we called it four on four. And I got this from Brad Hill from Kansas State, where you would have a, your, let's say, one group is your four infielders, pit, uh, first, second, short, third. Next group is a catcher and your three outfielders. So that would be team two. Team three would be another group of infielders. And team four would be another catcher and group of outfielders. And you could add an extra player here. You know, you may have five on one team or whatever. But you have one team. It's coach pitch scrimmage. You have one team hitting, one team running the base, and then actually a team playing defense. And you, there's certain rules like you always have to take two bases on a base hit to the outfield, no matter if you get thrown out by 40 feet. Okay, so you always have to go first to third or second to home on any base hit to the outfield to make the defense have to execute. And but you got points for every time you did get to go two bases on an extra on a base hit. You got a, the running team got a point. Uh, anytime the hitting team got a base hit or advanced runners, they got a point. So the running team's getting points, the hitting team's getting points, and the defense can get points for any double plays they turn, great plays, or they lose points for non-executing plays or or missing, you know, making errors. So it's a way you have four teams competing against each other, and you got it from several ways. You get it from defensive purpose, base running purpose, and hitting purpose. So I always like competing that way, and they always got after. And then they learned a ton. They they actually learned. Oh, crowd! It isn't as hard as you think to go two two bases on a base hit. <laughs> you know, in the outfield, they start figuring out how how they really can be aggressive, and then your outfielders and infielders get a lot better because everything's more game speed. So uh, that was another way I always liked competing. Let's get into the advice section now. Okay. What is the latest thing that you've learned that you're really excited about? Okay, well, I'm, I'm fortunate enough where we work. Our biggest thing is we brought um, some guys over that are movement coach specialists, and it's a it's a organization called Fighting Monkeys. You guys can Google it and stuff, and and it's it's little out there because it, you know they're from the European sector where they they train movements and stuff a little different than we do over here, but it's just a new way of how to create long lean explosive muscles basically making them more pliable even though they're gaining strength they're actually becoming more resilient instead of brittle a lot of times when we get heavy lifting weights and stuff we get stronger but our muscles are actually becoming more rigid so uh we're learning some new ways on that that's that's the newest thing i've learned uh that that just happened in the last couple of weeks (laughs) but before that was uh I went on a six-month – actually, it probably took closer to 18 months altogether. But when I first hired for Ron, I dove into six months of research on just how to, to utilize the lower half in the pitch and delivery. And I still keep learning every day on ways to enhance that and get better at that. So, But that's what it is. Is Those are the two big things that really probably in the last couple of years that have guided in what I've learned the most. What are some of your favorite resources that you go to constantly or have shaped your coaching career? Terms of clinics, you know, uh, the ABCA has been really helpful. Other aspirations, just talking to other coaches, trying to find knowledge online, going to visit practices, talking to anybody I can. So it, I don't say there's any one resource. I try to just find as many ways and avenues might like i said earlier find coaches that have been successful and go try to figure out what they're doing uh however it is whether it's through a clinic going to visit practice 
uh, working a camp for them. If you're a high school coach, you know, working college camps are great ways to start figuring out how what makes those guys successful and stuff. Um, and, and you can make a little extra dough for the summer for that stuff. Those are great resources on how to better yourself and also get that uh, networking part goes, which ends up helping with more resources. Because if this guy doesn't know something, he may know a guy that he can introduce you to that could help you in that aspect. And and the baseball world is really a great community because majority of the guys in here are here to help the other guys. And that's what's great about it. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think you can agree with me with saying that coaches are probably the greatest thieves in the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always say I don't think I've ever came up with an original thought. It was if it was original, it was a combination of stolen thoughts from other coaches that created it. You know, yeah, that's what you have to be uh, and, and figure out how to make it your own. You know, that that's what I said with everything. Go figure out what they're doing and then figure out how to make that part of whatever you like about what a successful coach is doing. Make it your own uh, and, and bring that back to your philosophy and how your program works. Because there is everybody needs to know their overall theme and their overall philosophy and that should shape everything first and then you work from outside in on on the I mean inside out on the rest of the stuff. It's from inside your philosophy, you pull stuff from the outside that will fit into it. Awesome. Uh, well, Coach Wallace, thank you so much for being with us today. It was truly a pleasure of mine to to have you on. Now, where can we find you online in case anyone wants to get in touch with you? Uh, my email is Coach Wallace at TexasBaseballRanch.com. Uh, and then go to uh, TexasBaseballRanch.com just to find out more information about the ranch and, and stuff. We have a we have a coaches clinic that is I, I think is one of the best pitching clinics uh, every year. Uh, we host that. It's usually the second weekend in December down here in Houston. So uh, there'll be some more information coming on in the fall about when the exact dates and registration and all that stuff was. Most coaches over the summer are busy doing stuff, and then when fall kicks back in. So uh, when the fall comes back, uh, if you're interested in seeing multiple speakers at a clinic, it's, it, I, I highly recommend it. I started doing I've been attending those for crud. It's been 14 years now. That I, and I haven't missed one, and that's kind of been that's actually been probably my greatest resource of of knowledge as far as the, just the pitching part goes. Is is that single clinic that we put on that we host now? I'm just fortunate enough I get to say we host now since I'm part of the uh, baseball ranch. But uh, look for that, and and that's how you can find me, Coach Wallace, TexasBaseballRanch.com. I'm on Twitter. I don't I don't tweet original thoughts. I'll retweet some stuff, and it's a Velo plus 21. Uh, that's my uh, at, uh, Twitter thing. So if you want to follow me on that, but don't expect a bunch of original thoughts. It's just uh, I'll retweet likes and, and like things that I see. So, But I, I, if it's something interested, a good article or whatever, then um, I, I definitely retweet that. So there's some information you will find out on that as well. Awesome, and I will add that to the show notes. Uh, Coach Wallace, is there anything that you would like to tell our listeners before you go? Uh, no, guys, uh, I, I truly enjoyed this, and uh, you know, always keep trying to learn and always keep trying to better yourself. And just remember how I feel as a coach: our job is to better ourselves so we can better the players we interact with, and that that's the true goal: is to get them better to reach their dreams, not only as players but just to impact them and make them become better 
men, husbands, fathers in the future. And that's the, that's more important than actually how good a player is. They end up truly becoming in the end. So, so that's how I hope uh, everybody views it and, and we go about it just and have that value that if we keep learning and we keep teaching, then that's, that's going to help just not our generation and our t- local team now. It can impact future generations for years and years to come. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. If you'd like to get in touch with me or view the show notes, you can find all of that information on our website at aotcpodcast.com. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.